Thank you, Holly, for reading that. For those that uh, do not, uh, not baptize as infants at our church, we, do, uh, we also do believer's baptism for those that come to faith in Christ. Uh, and that's about as much water as we use for an adult as well as Ryan uh, drenched Josiah, which I appreciate that. You should see the water in baptism. And that was very good. That was good. Man, what a, what a cool picture. Um, it, and it's not just the cool picture of, for adoption, um, but to think of Josiah in, uh, in, a, in a difficult place, uh, left uh, at a hospital, uh, and yet he gets brought in, not, not to our home, uh, that's, that's great, um, but he gets brought into this home. He, get brought in, he, get, he has been brought into the body of Christ. And that's true for all the children that, that we have as believers. We have them, and they, they get the privilege as Ryan said, of hearing the word, of being nurtured and cared, not just at home, but by the body of Christ. What a beautiful picture. Uh, thank you, Ryan. That was, that was uh, special for us. Um, let, me, let me pray for us as we come to God's word, and then we will look at Ecclesiastes chapter 7 as we've been moving along. Jesus, thank you for uh, the picture we saw in baptism. Lord, we, we need those object lessons. We need to know that as water washes the body, so does your blood cleanse us and a heart. And we know uh, Josiah needs to come to own that. He needs to come and, and embrace that as he grows, to believe in the gospel and be saved, as we say. And yet we know that he has the privilege of being a part of a community that, that teaches and preaches and loves in Jesus' name and loves the gospel and communicates the good news of Jesus. So I pray that there would never be a day where he did not know you as he has taught it from the lips, not just of mom and dad, but of each of us here. We pray that for all of our children, Lord, that they would hear clearly the good news of the gospel. We pray now as we come to your word, we, we pray that you would minister it to us, you would be with us, that these words would uh, hit us in our hearts and minds, prepare us now as we receive it, Lord, and do your good work with it. Lord, we are reminded of Frank, as we mentioned earlier, losing his dad this very morning. Lord, we pray for him. We pray for peace, for comfort for Frank and his wife Ellen and their family. For all the church family and all his friends and family, Lord, we pray for your care and your peace. And we're reminded that we are told to um, rejoice with those who rejoice as we just celebrated with my family, and yet we weep with those who weep. We weep knowing that, Jesus, you do both so very well. May we be a people that do the same thing. Lord, we rejoice now. We come to your word. Would you speak it to us in Jesus' name? Amen. Would you stand one last time for... Um, our reading of God's Word. This is from Ecclesiastes chapter 7. For those that are visiting, we, we move through books of the Bible. We're in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, and so we're going to plug along uh, verses 23 to 29. I believe it's up there. It sure is. All this I have tested by wisdom, I said. I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the schemes of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the schemes of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. So this alone I found, that God made man upright, 
that they have sought out many schemes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the convictions here at our church is that all of Scripture is inspired by God. Second uh, Timothy says it's breathed out by God, that he inspired it. And that means uh, easier passages to understand, and it means difficult passages like this in Ecclesiastes, which we read, hopefully we'll unpack, that are challenging. They're still the Word of God to us, His people. So as we try to unpack the riddle of what we just read, we know God has something for us if we're faithful and diligent to press in and pursue Hopefully we will find what God has tonight. Um, If you read Ecclesiastes, you should be struck immediately by its honesty. It flows from the very first words from the preacher, most likely Solomon. Solomon considered to be the wisest man on the face of the earth. But these words don't sound like the words of a preacher, right? They're um, They're not polished. They're not churchy. They're not religious. They're very honest Um, He names what we experience. He names that life is hard, that it's sad, that there are challenges, that there are paradoxes. He He doesn't silver line it like we do, right? It's blunt reality about the world we live in, and that's what the preacher gives us. This kind of honesty is rare, even among Christians or among the culture. But sometimes we find it in strange places. I read this the very first week, I think back in September, uh, the well-known and often crude comedian, Louis C.K., he, he put it bluntly in his interview with Conan O'Brien. He said this, Underneath everything in your life, there's that thing, that empty, forever empty, just that knowledge that it's all for nothing and you're alone. You know it, it's deep down there, and sometimes when things clear away, when you're not watching anything, and you're in the car, and you start going, oh, no, here it comes, that I'm alone. You know, it starts to visit on you, just the sadness. Life is tremendously sad just by being in it. From a comedian, right? Sometimes they're the most honest. It's not a religious guy, in fact, a sacrilegious guy, but he names the reality that life is hard, it's difficult, it's trials. It seems meaningless, or as the preacher says, it's vanity. Christians aren't too good at being honest. Um, But sometimes we find those that are. This is uh, theologian Philip Ryken says this. Life is like an account that refuses to balance. We can tell that there is a deficit, but we can't figure out exactly what it is. And even when we make an adjustment to get everything to add up correctly, deep down we know that somehow we are fudging the figures. We know in our honest moments that we live in a broken world, right? We try to make it work. We try to make it reconcile. But when we're honest in bed or woken up at night, we know deep down is our best effort that the world is broken, that we are fudging the numbers, that we're trying to cover up the challenges with distractions or substances to numb, to distract, to convince ourselves that it's okay or to present to others that it's okay. But if we're honest, we're like the comedian or we're like the theologian or we're like Ecclesiastes. The reality sets in that it's hard. And the preacher wants us not to settle for churchy stuff and cliches, um, little trite answers. Uh, I call it Christianity light. This sort of faux Christianity presents... You love Jesus and everything works out great. 
right? That's what we sell at bookstores. That's what we see on TV. Um, That's not what the Bible says, certainly not what the preacher of Ecclesiastes says. He paints a much more realistic picture, but I think a better picture, the one where we find Jesus in the deep, the difficult places. Uh, Ecclesiastes, Herman Melville, that famous author, said, is the truest of all books. The reformer Martin Luther said, it deserves to be in everyone's hand and cherished by all. So we come to Ecclesiastes 7. We're coming with honest questions. We've been doing this for seven chapters. I think you got the picture. But we're on a journey to find wisdom, and in wisdom to find the answer to what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose? Like if you're alive, if you're, if you're pulsed right now, you've asked that question. If you haven't, you will. When you face sorrow and struggle, you'll say, what is this all about? And we know Christians doubt. We know secular people doubt their doubts and wonder if maybe it's true. We're all in that boat. What is the meaning and purpose of life? So let's see. Let's see what we can find from this chapter or these few verses in chapter 7. What answers does he give us? Verses 23 to 25, we'll kind of take it in pieces. He says this, All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the schemes of things. He goes on in verse 28, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. Seeking wisdom so he can know what life's about and he can't find it. We see first the limitations of wisdom. The preacher, it's not, it's not just a theoretical or abstract or it's not just preacher words. It's actually his own journey. He's been on this journey to find out the meaning of life through wisdom. And he searched it relentlessly. He's fueled with ambition to find out the riddle. It's like a a high school graduate that's ready for the next chapter, and they're they're eager, or a young married couple. You know, we've got a few of those in here, and they're they're full of ambition and life and energy, and they can't wait to tackle the world. And the preacher tried that. Solomon went after it. Listen to the language in verse 25. I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom. I want to know. I'm eager. But the result was... Futility, devastating finality, there's no answer. Who can find it out? Verse 24. It's like trying to find a penny on the bottom of the Pacific Ocean. Seems impossible. It's not a shallow search. It's a deep search. Verse 28. Which my soul has sought repeatedly. It's a search that's in the place of longing. It's in the place of desire. It's in the place of I've looked around for life. I've lived a little bit. I've experienced it. I've tried some things. And I realize there's got to be something of weight, of substance that can give life meaning. I've tried everything under the sun, as he says over and over. Where is it? My soul longs to find it. And I did all the work, all their eager ambition, all the search. There's nothing. There's nothing. It's the philosopher who's done all his musing, philosophizing. He's got no answers. He can't find it. Wisdom is a great virtue, but it fails him. 
There's a limitation. It's not that wisdom is bad. We're to pursue wisdom. We've been talking about wisdom the last six chapters, but it's just there's a limitation to it. It can't get us all the way where we need to go. Theologically, we must embrace the space that we do not know. There's a mystery of life under God's hand, and our wisdom can't get us there. It's what Paul says in Romans 11. Listen to these words, 11.33. He goes into this, he's been doing this great theology, and he goes into this sort of praise, this sort of spontaneous doxology, just praise. He says, oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable his ways. He says, I I searched it and I hit a ceiling. There's a cap on it to what I can know. It's unsearchable, his wisdom. Ultimately, to be wise is to know that you can't be all that wise. You can't get to God. You can't find it out. You can't know on your own. It's like the best scientists or the best doctors or the best engineers. Um, At least the, the ones that are honest, the more they learn and learn and learn, what do they say? They're not impressed with how much man has learned. What are they impressed with? How much we still don't know, right? I've heard this from Dr. Grimm. Knowing the body, knowing all the details, all the things. It's amazing. It's amazing what modern medicine has done, and yet you say there's so much more we don't know. It's like the galaxies, right? We keep finding more and light years away, and we don't know. It's acknowledgement. It's humility. The gap The preacher can't get the meaning of life through wisdom. Discouraging a bit, but true. So what else? There's a limitation of wisdom. Look at the next verses here, 25. These are challenging. It says, I turned my heart. It's the next slide there, 25. Can you flip it? Go one more. Uh, There we go. The allure of folly. I turned my heart to know and to search and to seek wisdom and the schemes of things, and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death, the woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Verse 28 says, One man among a thousand I find, but a woman among all these I have not found. There's a limitation to wisdom, the preacher says, but there's also an allure of folly. It's not just... um, that we've sought wisdom and it hadn't gotten us all the way. It came up short. That's true. But it's also that we are drawn. We can't get to wisdom, but our hearts are drawn to folly. Repeatedly to foolishness. We're taken away. Wisdom eludes us, but we're, we're roped in. We're pulled in to folly. We're trapped in it. And this, is one of the most chal- this is one of the challenging places in Scripture. What do you do with verses like this? Um, it's hard to understand. It's helpful to have commentaries, people that study this. It's, uh, at first glance, it's what Proverbs do to us. It's like you, you imagine a boat that's sinking, and you try to bail it out with a styrofoam cup, you know. You're like, we're, not, we're not getting anywhere. You, you, need, you need buckets of water, and you need to return over and over and over. Like, uh, think about it. And that's what the Proverbs are meant to do, and that's what this is meant to do. It's like hard candy, you know. You don't chew it and swallow. You just leave it in the mouth for a while and kind of mull around a little bit until it absorbs. That's what we do with passages like this. So I've been seeking to do that this week and reading some some good folks. Um, And I think it's become a little clearer. On the surface, it looks like Solomon is being uh, misogynistic, right? I mean, he doesn't seem to be too fond of the ladies here. Um, We'll hear a little bit of his story in a minute. 
But I don't think that's the case once we dive in. He speaks other places in Proverbs and in this book, speaks well of women. The scripture speaks well of women. Jesus is the most affirming religious figure in all of history in relating to women. So what do we do? What is it that he says is more bitter than death? The allure of folly. What is it? There's two options. I'm going to give us two options briefly here. We can land the plane. The first is that we can take what he's saying here, um, is that we can talk about how wisdom literature is used in general. In Proverbs 7, foolishness is described as though it is a person, and that person is an adulterous woman. Proverbs is written to, as a father to a son to tell the son not to be allured by her, not to get into, in that to, to get connected to her because she is the way of folly. It uses, uses the adulterous woman as a personification of what it means to be the fool. And so to be a fool is the more bitter thing than death. Folly is seductive. It draws us in. It's the path. So some commentators take it that way. He's speaking in sort of general terms about a folly. It's possible. I think perhaps it's another. He's being more specific. He's being more literal. We're meant to take this, that we look for wisdom for meaning and life. I mean, we look for wisdom for meaning and life. We came up empty, right? It's sort of the rational mind. We thought it. We tried to figure it out. But likewise, man turns to relationships. They turn to relationships to find life, to find meaning. And here, this is a case study in this relationship with this man ensnared by this woman is a picture of what folly does, the seductiveness, the trap of relationships. We see the search for relationships that comes up empty. There's a type of relationships that promises life and meaning, yet leads to destruction. There's a woman, not all women, not womankind. There's a certain type of woman who possesses a particular character of heart, the text says. It says the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. She's, she's chains. She tries to trap. This woman is not in a good place, right? Her heart has been taken down the wrong path, the path of folly herself. She's come to see that her her way out, her way of life, her way of love is to to draw, to use her body and her words to draw in, to trap, to ensnare. Try to find life in something of this relationship. And traps the man that takes it. It's destructive. But notice, unless we're too quick, the man doesn't get off the hook, does he? It says, not all men, not all of mankind, but a certain kind of man is taken by her. There's a certain kind of heart within man that is allured, is drawn, that sees the traps and the nets and is seduced. He couldn't find it in wisdom, but maybe life can be found in relationships. This will be the story of Solomon for sure. And he's drawn in, he's entrapped, he's ensnared, and his heart is entangled. It says, he who pleases God escapes her, but there are many who are allured by her. Um, perhaps we wish Solomon would have been a little more balanced, you know. Oftentimes women feel like they're the problem. Like here he's showing us a case study of foolishness and folly. 
It represents not just women, but it represents humanity. Men and women have long used and abused one another, right? If you look at relationships, you watch TV, you watch anything on the internet, the way relationships are done, the way our culture, the, your own experience, my own experience, the way we've engaged with one another, they've mostly been through using and abusing, right? Through taking, to, through uh, abusing, through mistreating. Listen to these words. Zach Eswan, speaking about this passage in his commentary, he said this, By using this kind of language, the preacher follows the sage tradition, the wise tradition, of poetically warning of the life, bitterness, disillusionment that men and women who choose adultery, sexual misuse, and one-night stands ultimately bring upon themselves and their neighbors. For those of us who have been grasped with this kind of wind and have felt its emptiness, we affirm the wisdom and the care of the preacher's words. Many of us know this folly, he says. Worn out with use, we too now long for sex and relationships between man and woman in the way it was meant to be in the context of cherishing and respecting each other in true fidelity and covenant love. As it is, we hardly know what it's like to be looked at or touched by the opposite sex without them using us with their eyes or gaming us with their words. That's true of our experience, isn't it? It's the folly, the abundance, the allure of folly. The text says that it's the wickedness of folly. Folly in the Proverbs is not a neutral category. It's not like wise, and then that was, well, that was a bad decision, unwise. It puts the wise in the category of the righteous, and it puts the fool in the category of the wicked. Because folly is the way of the wicked that our hearts run and seek, reveals our hearts. Unless we feel self-righteous, if that's not you, which would be hard-pressed that that's not all of us in some regard, we just read last week what he says in verse 20, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. So it's the gotcha moment. If you feel good, if you've eluded uh, misusing and mistreating one another for your own good, Solomon reminds us, we're all sinners. We're all broken. Folly and foolishness, it's a trap for us all. I think it's the second option. He's speaking about relationship because it's the path that Solomon took. Do you know the story of Solomon? First Kings tells us that Solomon had uh, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Many of them were gifts to him from pagan nations. He has gone down the path of the fool. He was a fool as he, as he took them, but they were pagan wives. And the text says that those women drew his heart away from the one true God. They drew his heart away to idols. So he couldn't find wisdom, so he sought relationships. He sought women to bring life and meaning. And when it led him, is further and further and further away from the Lord. We know that. We tasted that. The scheming. What's, what's true? It probably leads into the words in verse 28. It says, a one man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Again, our first our eyes are drawn to the contrast, right? There's one man, there's no women. What's, what's the deal with women here, Solomon? Perhaps it's his story. The greater point as we back up is he's saying, in 2,000 people, he found one wise person. 2,000 people, one wise person. One half of one-tenth of a percentage of wise people. 
2,000, I've searched. I couldn't find wisdom, so I searched out people. One in 2,000, there's no one wise. There's no one to direct, and certainly in those days, women were not educated, so there were no expectations to be among the wise. But you know why there were no wise women? Because there were no wise men. (laughs) They were so very rare because our hearts are drawn to folly. We're allured, we're schemed, we're drawn in. Wisdom can't get us to the meaning of life, but neither can relationships. He uses this phrase, scheme, over and over. We scheme for life. But either way, we take it in sort of a general term of folly, or we take it in specifically this adulterous woman is speaking of an adulterous relationship. They both get us the same place. Look at verse 29. I think it's the next. There it is. All my research, all my searching, I did find something. I found one thing, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. I did find something. It's that God did it right, but our hearts have turned. The problem is our own hearts, our own sinful hearts are wandering. It's not God's problem. It's not God's fault. God didn't create us corrupt. God didn't create us to have relationships, male and female, where we use each other. And we scan each other and we evaluate each other. He used us to bless one another. He used us for goodness. It's our hearts. It's our fault. It's our scheming. It's the story of the Bible. From the very early chapters, you know the story, the story of Genesis. The very early chapter, man and woman were in perfection in the garden, made for life and goodness to bless each other, to be before God, to live in creation. Listen to what it says. Verse 6 of chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was delight to the eyes, and listen to this, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of his fruit and ate it. She gave some of it to her husband who was there with her, and he ate. This this, this just don't put him to Eve, right? Where was Adam? He was right there. He was passive. He was staying there watching. What's the problem? Is the the problem wisdom? Is the problem God? What's the problem? The problem from very early Genesis, throughout biblical history, throughout the history of redemption, to the very day, it's that we've sought wisdom in our own way, right? We've sought wisdom in our own eyes, in our own way. She had the promises of God, the care of God, the provision of God, the protection of God, and she was allured and said, I can find life and meaning apart from God. I I can take it and I'll be wise. I'll know the ways. I'll know the schemes. I'll know where life is found. She had life and the goodness of God. And she and Adam took, they took of it to find life and meaning. God gives us good directives. He gives us commands, not to harm us, but to teach us where to find life. He gives us his word and where we look for Twitter for wisdom. He gives us the Sabbath to rest and bless. But we think if we work more, actually we'll produce more. We go against his commands. He gives us boundaries. He gives us protection. He gives us all these things that will bless us. And we think we're wise in our own eyes. And we scheme and we search and we look to find life in other places. Whether it's active or passive, we want to be like Adam and Eve. We want to be autonomous, don't we? God, you made me, you created me, but I, I, sorry, I think I'm good. 
appreciate the effort. <laughs> I can find life and meaning on my own. Where do you look for life? I'm going to wrap up here. Where do you look for life? Where do you scheme? Where do you find, as, the, as the, the irreverent comedian said, the emptiness, the loneliness, where does it hit you and say, I know what I'll do. This is where I'll go, and, and it'll be okay. This is, what I'll, this, is, this is what I'll do, and life will have meaning. We're meant to go to him. Conclusion, if we can't get wisdom on our own, there's a limitation and all of us, even in our best moment, are drawn to folly. What's the solution? What do we do? Is it hopeless? We just throw up our hands? Well, there's that. It's the story of the world. It's the story to the day. It's the story of my life. We have to see Ecclesiastes in light of the big picture. Ecclesiastes gives us the answer at the end of the book. But it's helpful to zoom out to see, and we'll finish with this. Matthew 12 gives us a little clue on the meaning of life in the search for wisdom. It's a long passage. I'm not going to read it. But the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees come to Jesus. Jesus did all these things. And they say, we want to see a sign. We want to know that you're the real thing, that you're the Messiah. And Jesus gives this long answer. They were testing him. And he gives this long answer. But he concludes with this. This is chapter 12, 12 verse 42. The queen of the south, that's the queen of Sheba, one of the, the pagan queens, she will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. So they, they're looking for signs and wonders. And he said, listen, the nations, the pagan nations heard about the wisdom of Solomon. And they came for miles to sit at Solomon's feet. The wisest man, the preacher of Ecclesiastes. They came just to be in his presence to hear his wisdom. And the text says, Jesus says, and behold... Something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than Solomon is here. The nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Solomon had a thousand wives. Solomon was a lord like us. He was ensnared by us. He's telling us there's a cap. I can't get there with wisdom. And Jesus says wisdom came to us, right? We hit the barrier. We hit the ceiling. We can't do it. We can't rationalize it. Our hearts can't find it. We look. We search. We're eager. We try. We can't get to God. God has to come to us. Wisdom, the one greater than Solomon, Jesus came. He came for us. He did what we couldn't do. He did what only wisdom can do. He is Wisdom himself, he penetrated the barrier we couldn't break, relationships couldn't fix. And the question is, as we end, why did he do it? Why did he do it? Because we're fools. Ecclesiastes reveals what's true of us, right? It reveals the journey of the wisest man, and in his journey, where we find ourselves? In the same path. We've looked at it week after week. We sought vocation. We sought relationships. We sought sex. We sought money. We sought family. We sought good things. We sought bad things to try to get to him. He didn't come because we're good. He didn't come because we're wise. He didn't come because we have it all together. The greater Solomon came because we are the fool. We are the fool. Romans tells us that not in our great moments, but while we were yet sinners, 
on our worst day, on our most foolish day, Christ died for us. That in Christ, the fool becomes wise. That in Christ, in our relationship with Christ, we now can apply the wisdom of Solomon in our own life. We can now live with meaning and purpose in relationships, male and female, in our jobs, in our families, relationship to money, the whole world, the whole wisdom we were searching. He came to us so we can see the world aright and be made new. Wisdom. We can't find our own, but wisdom has come for us. It is the grace of God for sinners. Ecclesiastes is meant to go, what? You're meant to scratch your head and to search and to wrestle. That's the point. To reveal the heart, to go to a place of honesty. Maybe you've never gone. And in that place of honesty, to ask the question, where is life and meaning? And he directs us time and time again to the one that's greater than Solomon. Jesus, the true wise one that brings life and salvation. Do you know him? Have you trusted him? I encourage you to do so. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Very difficult, difficult word. And yet true. It rings true um, 2,500 years ago. It rings true today. It is your word for us. May we know it. Uh, May we meditate on it. May we not come to it quickly and think we have it together. But may we think on it. May we meditate on your word. May we contemplate. May we know our own hearts. Where have we searched? Where do we look for life outside of you? And then as we name it, may we confess it and throw ourselves upon the wise one that takes fools like me and makes us wise in Jesus. May that be true. May we know that even today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The good news of the gospel is we don't just hear hard text. But God knows that we need to see it because it's hard to understand, right? And so he gives us the Lord's Supper to see a picture of the body of Christ broken for us. It's his body broken. Why? For us, that we would be made whole. It's his blood shed. Why? Because of our sin, that it might be washed away in Christ. Um, We have these little combination packets for those that are new, visiting with us. This is how we're taking communion during covid Um, We have them up front here and over here and here with me. What we're going to do tonight is you can take it. If you don't feel comfortable coming, you're fine to take it where you're seated. It's totally fine. If you'd like to come forward in a minute, Pastor Ryan will be over here and Dwayne Baxter will be over here. And we will just take it around them. Come with your your family, maybe your your, uh, roommates, whoever you feel comfortable with. And we'll just take them together and then we'll say a little prayer blessing kind of over you at that time.